Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Giving something to the person that their body doesn't want and making the number look good in the blood doesn't necessarily fix the issue. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Today, I have Dr. Eric Balkavage, who is the owner and founder of Rejuven, a functional medicine clinic in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. He's a functional medicine practitioner, board certified in integrative medicine, along with being a licensed chiropractor in Pennsylvania. He is the co-host of the Thyroid Answers podcast, which focuses on answering the pressing questions those suffering with chronic hypothyroid symptoms can't get answered elsewhere. You can find his educational Thyroid Thursday videos on Vimeo and YouTube. He recently wrote a book called The Thyroid Debacle. We'll talk a little bit about that today with Dr. Kelly Halderman that addresses the problems with current allopathic and functional medicine approaches to hypothyroidism, as well as solutions to restoring thyroid physiology. And man, what a good topic. We were just talking offline how this interview happened, but he had been on my list for a long time, Dr. Eric Benoist, for quite a while to talk about thyroid. And man, I'm going to ask you, I hope, lots of good and hard questions today to serve our audience very well. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Well, tell me how you got so interested in thyroid. Where did your passion for thyroid really start? Because you've carved out quite the corner of the world or the internet on it. Well, I had like no interest at all in mm-hmm. thyroid physiology, to be honest. I was a medical technology major, wanted to go to med school, wound up going to chiropractic school instead. And so once I found chiropractic, I really didn't want to have anything to do with allopathic medicine. I was happy doing that. I had a family member get diagnosed with hypothyroidism, fibroids, and iron deficiency. And the solution for her was uh, hysterectomy, thyroid medication, and iron replacement. And my sibling reached out to me and said, hey, here's what's going on with his spouse. And I said, why are you, why are you calling me? <laughs> you know, What do you want me to do about it? It's not what I do. And he said, because you're going to figure it out. And so I started getting back into my blood chemistry roots from my medical technology days and kind of seeing what's going on. And then I found 
functional medicine. I was like, all right, I'll take some of this stuff, try and learn some of this. I found Tatis Karazi and he'd had a book come out. So I was digging into that and I was like, oh, she's got an immune autoimmune issue. That's what's going on. And so we started, I'm like, here's what I think. Her medical doctors didn't want to hear it, but that started the process of trying to help her through this process so she wouldn't have to, you know, have her, you know, hysterectomy and be, you know, a lifetime of, you know, kind of ignoring the root issues. And so I, I started helping her. As I'm doing that, I'm talking to my chiropractic patients. You know, you're always looking for something to talk to people about while you're on a working on them and start talking about what I'm learning. And I realized that, man, almost half of my patient base has is on thyroid medication. I never really paid attention to it. And they're not happy and they don't feel good. And so that I started to those clients say, hey, I'm I'm doing this functional medicine thing. You know, it started taking on some. Your chiropractic patients don't really look at you now as the functional medicine specialist, right? They're like, oh no, you're my chiropractor. But that led to me to talking about things. And the more I started digging into the science and literature, the one thing I really hated was reading sciencey stuff growing up. And now I became this who started reading all this stuff. And then that just kept going. And then I met uh, a guy named Dr. Ben Lynch when as I was digging into methylation and got in with him. And as we were working on some of his conferences, he's like, man, your opinions are a lot different than everybody else, even in the space, you probably should write a book. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing writing a book. And he said, well, I think you should go write a book. So go write a book. And so set out to write the book and it took more time and effort than I was going to take. But here we are today. Yeah. And now it's like a podcast and a video series and it's mm -hmm. your whole thing. Mm -hmm. So yep. I guess life happens. So you dug into the blood chem. We'll come back to that. The first thing I want to mm -hmm. know was, and thanks for reminding me, Ben Lynch was on my list of people to contact today because why is all of our stuff out of stock? Because life right now in the last couple right. of years, right? Yeah. Tell me what about your opinions were different that were rocking the boat? Well, there's two kind of approaches when we think about thyroid physiology. One is the allopathic approach that you don't have a thyroid disorder, hypothyroidism, let's say, until your gland is shot. You've lost 90% of the function of your gland, your TSH is high, your free T4 is low. And that's when we diagnose somebody with a thyroid condition. We only look at two lab values in that model, many times only one, just a TSH. But there's no official diagnosis of hypothyroidism and no treatment until you get to that point. And so if you're struggling with hypothyroid signs and symptoms, they're not thyroid signs, hypothyroid signs and symptoms because you don't have glandular hypothyroidism. So it's like saying you don't have a blood sugar problem because you're not diabetic yet, but everything is a process. So that's the medical model. I understand why they think that way because they don't have any other option. Their treatment is thyroid replacement therapy. So if my only solution is thyroid replacement therapy, why would I diagnose you with something that I can't help you with? So we'll wait until you have something I can diagnose you and treat you with. Now we have this functional medicine model. And in functional medicine model, we would say, hey, those medical doctors are silly. They don't realize that everybody's got Hashimoto's, this autoimmune condition. And most of the allopathic physicians re fully realize that their clients have an autoimmune condition. But in the allopathic world, an autoimmune condition means we don't know what's causing it. So we either put you on immune suppressants or we wait till the tissue that's being attacked is damaged enough that we can treat it. So they already know. They don't need to run thyroid antibodies. They already know it's an autoimmune condition. But we thought, oh, you silly doctor. So we run more comprehensive panels. And we don't just look at TSH and free T4, but we look at the thyroid antibodies and we look at T3 and free T3. And we look at T3 uptake and we look at a fuller panel. And because we're better 
and we see that T4 isn't converting to T3 because we can see it because we're running it and we can see maybe more T4 is being deactivated, we fully realize that the problem is that they have an immune issue, but the other problem that the medical doctor is missing is they're not converting T4 to T3. And so therefore, we're going to give them T3 and that's better. And to me, it still doesn't make sense when you understand the physiology, at least from my perspective, giving something to the person that their body doesn't want and making the number look good in the blood doesn't necessarily fix the issue. And so I had a hard time with that. I also had a hard time with the idea that your immune system's out of control and it's just attacking your thyroid gland. Like you woke up one day and your immune system said, that thyroid thing, we don't need it anymore. I don't even understand what it is doing there. Let's get rid of it and attack it. And so I don't think what we see is an immune system that's out of order, that's lost control. I think what we see in thyroid physiology is not broken. It's adaptive changes that the cells and tissues and the immune system are making to excessive cell stress, which is a different approach than many in our functional medicine space believe. They believe it's just a conversion issue that your immune system, that your body's deactivating it for some unknown reason or prevent to your deactivate reverse T3 and that reverse T3 is blocking the T3 from working. And all we have to do is get rid of all the T4 and put T3 in and we've solved the problem, but it doesn't work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or at least it doesn't work for a lot of people. I think it's a different issue. I think there's excessive cell stress, cells in excessive stress adaptively downregulate their metabolism. Mm -hmm. They stiffen their cell membranes. They reduce mitochondrial ATP production. They reduce the amount of fat that's being used as fuel. They increase the amount of glucose that's being used as fuel. They decrease oxygen transport into the cells and tissues. They increase inflammation. Essentially, what cells under perceived stress do is downregulate the manufacturing process and ramp up the inflammatory process. And one of the tools that's used to do that is a reduction in T3 inside the cell. So the very thing that we're looking at as the problem, oh, your body forgot how to convert to T4 to T3, your body didn't, but it's doing it adaptively. And when that cell stress, cell danger physiology becomes is short-term, you get local tissue deactivation, habits for a short period of time, you deal with the threat, and then your physiology goes back to normal. Every time you've had a cold, a virus, what short-term sickness you've had, cellular tissue hypothyroidism. But when that cell stress becomes chronic and persistent, that can lead to the thyroiditis that we see at the gland. So it's not, in my opinion, many times not an immune system that's lost control, but an immune system that's actually being directed to create the damage at the thyroid gland. I think it's more of an adaptive response. And I think it's a better position to come from because if you tell your patient you have an autoimmune disorder, your immune system's out of control and your body's attacking you, that does not put somebody in a good healing mode versus if you tell somebody, hey, there's excessive cell stress and what your body is doing is trying to slow the metabolism down to protect you. And one of the things it has to do is reduce the amount of thyroid hormone available. And so if we can address the stressors that are causing your immune system to be upregulated, address them, reduce them, remove them, elevate them, and support the recovery back to normal physiology, the thyroid gland and the conversion can start to recover. It's a survival mechanism. Body down regulating to survive, right? I yeah, I believe so. And there's been a great paper written. You may have geeked out on this paper called The Cell Danger Response by Dr. Robert Navio, who talks about all seven or eight kind of bigger concepts of what's involved in the cell danger response. And he talks about like these big eight steps that happen with that cell danger response. The one thing he does not mention in that paper 
is thyroid physiology. Hmm. And when I read that paper, I was like, how could he miss the, what's going on with thyroid physiology? Now, if you read the works of Dietrich, Dr. Bianco, and others, they'll tell you that, hey, this is an adaptive response. Here's the science that shows it's an adaptive response. So you would think the guy who just wrote the paper, the cell danger response and how cell membranes stiffen and we decrease glucose transport into the cell and we increase, we downregulate mitochondria would have something, a blurb in there about thyroid physiology. But when I reached out to him, he's like, you know what, Eric, I don't know much about thyroid physiology. Mm. So it was just kind of missing from the paper. But that was my aha moment when I read that paper. Instead of what I learned, like, hey, the immune system's out of control and the body just can't convert T4 to T3, oh, it's not really broken. It's adapting to something. Yeah. And so the analogy I usually use for my clients is if you were, let's say, you were having a big party at your house this weekend for the blizzard conditions, right? And you're cooking, you're cleaning, right? You got all four burners on. Do you have any, do you have any kids? Yep, three. Okay. So let's say your favorite child is sitting on the kitchen island while you're cooking, doing wash, vacuuming, all that stuff. And somebody breaks into your home and starts attacking your child. Are you going to continue to cook? No. Are you going to take the time to turn the burners off, put everything in nice glass Tupperware? Nope. Before you go help her? Nope. Are you going to try and slide one more load of wash in? Nope. <laughs> You're not going to try and finish vacuuming? Nope, not at all. You're not going to try and take a nap? Nope. I do You're like not going to go have sex? <laughs> nope. <laughs> so if I walked into your home and I saw that the food is burning on the stove, the vacuum cleaner is running, wash is all over the place, the place is a disaster, I could jump to the conclusion that you're a terrible homemaker, spouse, mom, cook, cleaner, right? I could make that conclusion. Mm -hmm. You could. Or I could say, wow, this is unusual. Maybe I need to investigate why this is going on Mm -hmm. and go maybe look in the basement for you fighting an attacker, right? But when we look at our physiology and we see cholesterol high or low T4 to T3 conversion, we just make an assumption that it's broken instead of saying, hmm, why would the body do this? I like to come from the perspective that the body's pretty smart. We got to this from two cells. Are you kidding me? We were able to create this from two cells. And yet one day your body woke up and doesn't realize, oh, the thyroid gland is my own tissue, right? I don't really know how to convert T4 to T3 anymore. I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. And after 30 years of working with clients, what do we see? Well, when we work on the foundational factors that cause excessive stress, their immune reactivity goes down, their inflammation goes down, they convert T4 to T3 at a better without having to manipulate the values with medication. And oh my gosh, the thyroid gland starts to recover and make more thyroid hormone. Isn't that crazy? This is a conversation about nourishment, it feels like, right? Because we're in survival and our body doesn't have enough resources to do everything it needs to do. Well, I think yes and no. Some of us are overnourished. I'm not no, sure overfed. nourished is the right word. Oh, overfed, yeah. overfed, right? But undernourished. Even in that cell stress response, what do we do? We still put stuff in storage mm-hmm. and hide stuff from the threat, right? Think about iron physiology. When we think about iron physiology, an iron deficiency anemia is the biggest cause of anemia in this country. Mm. I don't buy it. Anemia. The biggest cause of anemia in this country is anemia of chronic disease or chronic inflammation. Mm. So what does that mean? For the listener, that means iron's like a teenage boy, okay? It is always chaperoned in the body. If you leave a teenage boy unchaperoned, they're going to get in trouble, okay? If you leave iron unchaperoned, it's going to get in trouble. 
It's going to react with something. It's going to be picked up by a bacteria, an organism. So we don't like iron to be too too free. So we absorb it. We bind it to a transport protein. We drive it around the body. We unload it to a tissue, a cell, so it can do what it needs to do. And any excess, we hide inside a storage unit, inside cells, the primary one called ferritin. Okay. Mm-hmm. And for the listener, like he's like, well, what's ferritin? Ferritin's iron, right? No, ferritin is not iron. Ferritin is the storage container for iron inside your cells. It should not be in your serum at very high concentrations. It should be low in your serum. But when you have a cellular threat, what is the organism that the cells want to hide the iron so that the organism can't get at it? It makes you look anemic. Mm-hmm. And you would say, well, I just need to give more iron. No, we have to ask the better question. Why would the body try and hide the iron before we start to consider we should just give it? Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's really hard to be anemic in this world. Unless you're bleeding out on a regular basis, it's almost impossible to be iron deficient. Mm-hmm. Real easy to be anemia of inflammation. So are we deficient in the nutrient? Mm, maybe, maybe not. But maybe the body's sequestering it. And we do this all the time. New client today, 28 bottles of supplements she's taking based on what her functional medicine practitioner recommended for her. And she's like, what do we need to do here? What's your opinion? I'm like, we need to be off everything. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I need all these. I'm like, look, here's your lab work. You're taking massive quantities of B vitamins and you're still showing B vitamin deficient. Well, how could I be deficient? Well, maybe you're not absorbing it, or maybe what you're taking in, your cells don't want or can't use. Therefore, it might be in serum, but it's not getting into the cell. So the idea that we can just overload the system with individual micronutrients and that'll solve the problem. Dr. Navio does a fantastic job of that in his paper saying, hey, in health conditions, here's what you do with vitamin D. In unhealthy conditions, this is what you do with vitamin D. And it's two different things. Ooh, I want to get into the vitamin D controversy. And maybe we should just go there now. I was going to ask you about biggest threats to thyroid function that make this essential. Like what is part of the treatment pie of addressing the thyroid stress response, essentially? But Mm -hmm. We can do that or we can go straight into vitamin D controversy because- You go anywhere you want to go. Let's go vitamin D controversy because you just brought it up. So mm-hmm. I have a huge problem with people just supplementing isolated vitamin D because <laughs> we cause other deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And this is how I feel about all, mm-hmm. a lot of individual nutrients. So hopefully we're on the same page. I'm sure we are there. What do you mm-hmm. want to speak to? You tell me about vitamin D in relationship to thyroid and how we're potentially missing. We're not doing- the patient justice or we're not using this properly? Yeah. So first of all, when we think about vitamin D and people measuring vitamin D, they're not measuring vitamin D. Mm -hmm. They're measuring 25-OHD, which is the circulating storage form of vitamin D. So you either... Vitamin D is this vitamin that we make in our skin from cholesterol or we absorb it from our diet or from our supplements. Vitamin D then must get to the liver to be converted into what we typically see measured, 25-OHD. To get there, it needs transport binding molecules that require something called magnesium to get them there. Okay. Once that vitamin D gets to the liver, it can be converted into 25-OHD, which again requires magnesium. And then that's the circulating storage form. Then 
where does it go from there? Well, medicine would and typically anytime somebody's measured that, that's the only thing they're measuring. If it's low, you need more. If it's high, you probably need more, right? So I mean that's the way it goes. But 25 OHD is not what does the work. What does the work is 125 OHD, which gets activated when there's decreased calcium in the bloodstream or when there's immune inflammatory infection processes, you get an increased conversion of 25 OHD to 125 vitamin D. What does 125 vitamin D do? It's like a steroid. It actually calms down the immune system. So I get an infection, the immune system ramps up, then I need to calm it back down. I use 125 vitamin D to calm it back down. And we want to assess somebody's vitamin D physiology. We need to look at a couple different things. We need to look at What's my magnesium level? Whether you measure serum magnesium, RBC magnesium, whether you want to go get a muscle biopsy, that's up to you, but you'll probably do it once. You 25 OHD, which is what everybody measures, but we also need to measure 125 vitamin D, which is the activated form. Now, medicine typically and people who don't measure it say, well, it's too small to measure. We don't, it can't, we can't measure it accurately. It's the same excuse we gave for why we don't look at the active form of thyroid hormone T3. It's too small. We can't measure it accurately. But if you have an immune inflammatory process going on, we know you're going to convert 25 to 125 vitamin D most likely. And when you have high 125 vitamin D, what does it do? It suppresses the liver's conversion of vitamin D to 25 vitamin D. So it actively downregulates it. The other thing we're not considering is under certain immune inflammatory processes, we can also deactivate vitamin D to what's called 24-25 OHD, which requires magnesium, or we can deactivate the 125 vitamin D to 124-25 vitamin D, which also requires magnesium. So we're not really even looking at the whole picture of what happened with vitamin D. And so we need to consider that we're only looking at this small little picture and not the big picture as to what's going on. If you think you need vitamin D, we also have to consider, hey, my 25 OHD is low. Well, are you deactivating it? Do you have not have enough magnesium to make it? Are you over-converting it to 125 so the body says, hey, don't do more? Well, you don't know. And we don't measure the inactivated forms at this point. The other thing we have to consider is as you gain weight, more vitamin D goes into your fat cells. And people will say, well, it's because it just gets stored there. No, it doesn't. It actually makes more room and more space for you to store more stuff. Why does it do that? Well, because if you start crowding your adipose sites with more stuff, that creates more tension, more inflammation, and we don't want to do that. So we'll just make them bigger. Now you got more space. Interesting study. It's a rat study because you can't do these studies in humans. But when they got rid of the vitamin D receptors in rats, so the vitamin D couldn't work, they could not get fat. Mm. Interesting, right? But here's the bigger issue. Most people think that they need high vitamin D so they don't have osteopenia or osteoporosis. Well, let's think about what activated vitamin D does. It pulls calcium from your GI tract. So that could increase the calcium in the, in the bloodstream. It also pulls calcium from your bone to restore the serum level of calcium, not the bone level of calcium, the serum level of calcium. So then you have to consider, okay, if I'm taking a whole bunch of vitamin D and my serum calcium is still low or it's normal and I'm blasting myself with it, where's the calcium going? Is it laying down my arteries and causing calcification of my arteries, my joints, my tissues? Or is it because 125 vitamin D 
can bind to recept vitamin D VDR receptors on cells and increase calcium absorption into cells. And most people would say, what? Is that good or bad? I don't know. Well, some calcium inside the cell, not too bad. A lot of calcium in the cell causes more what? Oxidative stress. Probably the very reason you're trying to take vitamin D in the first place is to suppress the immune inflammatory response. So I don't think it's a great idea. The other reason I don't think it's a good idea is vitamin D and vitamin A have to be in sort of a ratio inside the body. Like it's a four to one vitamin A to vitamin D ratio in the body. And so if you're taking a lot of vitamin D, you typically reduce the amount of vitamin A you absorb. And therefore, you reduce the amount of vitamin A that's there to do a lot of reactions inside the body. And there's a lot of receptors inside the nucleus in the cells, RXR, RAR receptors. These are retinoic acid receptors that help with signaling. So if you're depleting the body of vitamin A, you could negatively be impacting signaling, including thyroid signaling. So is that a great idea? No. I don't think so, right? So I think there's lots of problems with it. And anytime we just think an unlimited amount of something is good, because to me, that's a problem. It's, I have the same argument with omega fatty acids. Everybody needs to be taking omega fatty acids. Well, there's controversy there that we're not paying attention to. No, everybody says it's good. Is it? Well, we don't make much DHA from in our bodies naturally. Okay. Well, is that a flaw worldwide or is that an adaptive response? Maybe we don't need as much DHA at high concentrations from omega-3. Well, the you know cold water fish have it. Well, I don't swim in cold water. Why would I need to have that fatty acid? And what the, we don't often realize is the DHA, which everybody thinks is awesome. It's a, again, another steroid, which is great short term. What the science has shown is, as you start to increase the amount of this stuff that you take and do it for a prolonged period of time, it replaces something called cardiolipin in the mitochondrial membrane. DHA is six double bonds. Cardiolipin is four double bonds. Which one's more reactive? Now you're replacing a less reactive fat with a more reactive fat right in the mitochondria where you make all the free radicals. Good idea, bad idea. I think it's probably a bad idea. Mm -hmm. My issue when people take vitamin D is similar to yours. It's that they're, we're depressing vitamin A. I'm just underlining some things mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And we are screwing with our calcium stores, which is also what you just mm -hmm. described. And I that impairs thyroid function. So is there a time where vitamin D taken exogenously or via orally is warranted? Well, I think if you are truly deficient, sure. Yeah, I think you take it. I tell most people if you're going to take vitamin D, take it in a take it with vitamin A and good ratio. If you want a simple way to do it, cod liver oil's got a great four to one ratio. Why not do it that way? But I see reasons to take it, but you have to take a look at multiple factors. Now, some people say, well, you need to take it to suppress your thyroid antibodies. Well, it all depends. If you believe that thyroid antibodies are like little Pac-Man eating away your thyroid gland then and suppressing the Th2 side of the immune system, then maybe you're right, but they don't. The thyroid antibodies don't act like little Pac-Man eating away the thyroid gland, and that's been shown in the literature, even though we learned that in functional medicine. So if I suppress that side of the immune system, am I improving it or am I just suppressing it? Yeah, you're just making the labs look good. Right. So I don't want to do that. I actually want to see who you are. I want to make sure the things we're doing that aren't suppressing things. But if I look at somebody's vitamin D levels and they're 25 vitamin D is low, they're 125 vitamin D low, their calcium is low, then maybe they need some vitamin D. Mm -hmm. If I look at their labs and they have poor fat absorption in their GI tract and they have poor bile function, 
yeah, maybe I need to support biophysiology, right? But I also want to ask the question, if their vitamin D is low, why is it low? Mm Mm-hmm. Is it because they don't get sun exposure? Is it because they don't have cholesterol in their system to convert from sun? Is it because they have poor absorption of fats and fat-soluble vitamins in their diet? I don't want to jump to replacement. Is it because they're they're stressed and deficient in magnesium? Could be, right? Right. Another whole thing. And if you look at somebody's, say what you want about magnesium testing, but a lot of people wind up being looking deficient. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about now, let's make a list of things that you see stressing out these cell membranes that causes this multi-system adaptive disorder, or Mm -hmm. essentially uh, thyroid survival mechanism. What's excessively stressing out these cells and these maybe receptor sites, et cetera? So easy things would be like, okay, organisms, obviously, right? So if you have an organism in a cell and it's stealing energy from a cell, that can trigger that cell danger response. So you know, whether is it bacteria, is it Lyme co-infection, a virus, it doesn't matter. Any of the organisms could potentially do it if it's excessive. But the things that people don't pay attention to is like hypoxia, mm. right? A reduced amount of oxygen getting into the cell, that will trigger a cell stress response. And most people are like, well, how could that be me? Well, if you look at somebody's blood chemistry panel and they have a low carbon dioxide on their blood draw, could that be impact their ability to get oxygen to the tissues? I'll give you the answer. The answer is yes. Okay. So what does that mean? When you breathe in oxygen that binds to your red blood cells, that oxygen then it hasn't done its job. That oxygen's only doing its job when it gets off the red blood cell and gets into the tissue where it can then get inside the cell, stimulate energy, what we call aerobic metabolism, where we take one glucose molecule or some fat molecules and turn it into a whole bunch of cellular energy. But if you have low carbon dioxide in your blood, that red blood cell is probably not going to want to give up that oxygen. You could have 99% oxygen saturation, but the red blood cell is like, I like this oxygen. I'm not giving it up. If it sees a lot of carbon dioxide, it's like, if I can get two of those for one of these, yeah, I'll give up the oxygen. But if you have low carbon dioxide, that could be creating some cellular hypoxia. So why would you have low carbon dioxide? Well, option A is you have too much acidosis in the body. One of the places you'd get too much acidosis is the GI tract. So in, in the GI tract, you make you break foods down with a bunch of acids, and then you've got to neutralize it with some stuff called bicarbonate. But if you have lots of acid in the body, and then you need to steal carbon dioxide from the bloodstream to use as a buffer for all this acidity. Now your carbon dioxide is lower. Now you have a harder time giving up oxygen to the tissues. The other way that can happen is you're a mouth breather. That was my first. And so thought. if you're a yeah, so if you're a mouth breather, you're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. And nobody's a mouth breather when I ask them, but when are you most often a mouth breather? When you're sleeping. At night, when you're sleeping, and you don't realize that your mouth is open and you're breathing through your mouth. And so when people are like, well, how could that be a problem? I'm I'm breathing in lots of oxygen. Doesn't matter if it comes through my nose or my mouth, but it does. And so when we mouth breathe, we blow off too much carbon dioxide, and then we're not we got all this oxygen, but it can't be released. And cells, when we have cells that have reduced oxygen, that's an emergency signal to the cell. Like, whoa, we don't have enough oxygen. We need to shut down the mitochondria. We need to shift from aerobic oxygen using respiration to anaerobic non-oxygen using respiration. And how do I do that? I turn down the amount of T3 inside the cell. So when a cell perceives low oxygen, 
it activates an enzyme called hydroxy-inducible factor alpha-1, which then increases deiodinase 3, which is the enzyme that converts T4 and T3 into their inactive forms. Just keep so your mouth shut at night, guys. Keep your mouth shut, keep your nose open, right? So that's like a huge thing nobody wants to pay attention to, right? Mm-hmm. Other things are emotional stress, trauma, like what goes on between the six inches of your ears, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's hard for people to realize that that triggers a, a stress response in the tissues. But do you know, what I usually tell people is when they say, I don't think that really is changing my physiology, really. Okay. So do you like speaking in front of a large group? No. Okay. So we're going to go speak for four hours in front of this large group starting now, right? And they're like, some people get like physically upset, like when you're just making it up and they go, they do one of the, you know, big five piece, like I'm going to pass out. I'm going to puke. I'm going to poop. I'm going to pee. I'm going to perspire, right? Any one of those, that is a thought changing your physiology, and we've all experienced that where we're like we're nervous, right? A perception of things. Something's not even happened yet. And it changes our physiology. What do you think happens day in, day out when either consciously or subconsciously you're in a worry state? You still you're change your physiology, right? You're exercising that fight or flight all day long and atrophying your rest and digest. Before you know it, you can't digest or get any nutrients. Yeah. It's so it's challenging topic for, for us who are, you know, we start with science and we're like, oh, I don't know. I was going to be talking about emotions and trauma so much. <laughs> right. And so I think we throw the word trauma around too yeah. easily. Everybody's traumatized. You didn't hold the door open for me. Oh my gosh, I'm traumatized. No, you're not. No, you're not. Okay. But every bad stuff happens. Right. I call it emotional fitness. How quickly can you take a bad experience, a negative experience, and turn it into a win, a positive? Not that it's great, right? If somebody died, it's not good. But how can I take that really bad experience and turn it into something that's going to be beneficial? Right. I call that emotional fitness. If you're not good at that and that's you're carrying that burden every day, that's adding to that stress load. And you only have a certain amount of tolerance before you're into danger physiology. And so what we want to do is not have this big load of stuff day in, day out. Disrupted sleep patterns will cause excessive stress response on your physiology. How many people go to bed too late, have altered sleep patterns, wake poorly recovered? I mean, large percentage of the population, right? How about people that either don't do any physical activity, that's stress on, on the tissues, or like what I was doing when I found out I had Hashimoto's was four hours of sleep, triathlon training, work, coach, parent, study, you know, nerd out, right? I ate good. I exercised, but I was overtraining and under recovering. And you do that, you know, 20 years, guess what happened? You find out you have Hashimoto's and insulin resistance in your forties. So physical stress, strain, chemicals in our environment. I mean, we're inundated. We're not going to escape them. But it's really, to me, it's more the load than typically one thing. I think sometimes we look for the sexy thing. Is it Epstein-Barr? I have Epstein-Barr and that's what it is. Now, it's probably a combination of relationship stress, reduced sleep, poor breathing. That's triggering this inflammatory response. What's making breathing and respiration harder. You're making bad food choices. That's just changing your gut biome. The changing gut biome is triggering inflammation. And it's just a cascade of things. And so- I look at the load versus the thing, but it's a lot of the things we do habit lifestyle wise that creates problem. Yeah, totally. You know, a good analogy that I heard about emotional stress or how the, the brain can't really discern between imaginary stress and real stress. And one example is if you've ever woken up from a, a nightmare and you like 
in a jolt because it was a horrible dream and your heart is racing, et cetera. That was imaginary, but your brain saw it the same way. And I heard that recently and I thought that's a good one. You know, if you don't really believe that this perceived versus real stress is an issue anyway. But we use it all the time in sports, Mm. right? We visualize the shot and there's studies been done where they had people just with free flows, free throws, right? Shooting basketball. One group free throws. Another group didn't shoot free throws for 60 days. And then the third group never shot a free throw. They just envisioned shooting free throws. Mm -hmm. The group that didn't shoot any didn't get any better. The group that shot them got better. The group that envisioned shooting them but never actually took a shot did just as good as the group that shot the actual free throws. I love research. So you see this in sports and like, and so. Why do you see people before they go do their downhill run or their gymnastics move or their movements that they're going to do? They practice those things in their mind so many times that when you get out there, when you got to do it, it's like second nature. Mm -hmm. Love it. Okay. So we talked about reasons that we have the cell danger response or or maybe more so you have a multi-system adaptive disorder. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Well, call that multi-system adaptive disorder. What happens as a consequence of that cell danger response, right? So what happened, I would have patients come in who said, I have adrenal fatigue, I have leaky gut, I have this, I have that, I have this, and thinking it's a whole bunch of separate conditions. And what I was trying to tell them, you don't have a whole bunch of separate non-connected conditions. You have one real big issue, excessive cell stress. And it's resulting in a whole bunch of systems having to adapt because when we have excessive cell stress, the body shifts energy away from normal physiologic processes to defense. And so I don't have as much energy to make more proteins and peptides. I don't have as much energy to make for sex hormones. So that's going to go get down regulated. So when you think you've got an adrenal fatigue, a gut issue, what you have is a multiple multi-system adaptive disorder, which means if we address what's causing the stress, then guess what? Those systems were adapting to the stress. So if we reduce the stressors, then we can go back to more normal physiology. Mm-hmm. So but I, didn't, in- I had to come up with some name for it. Yeah. No, it's reasonable. Let's come up with like a nice, what do we call that? A mnemonic device now? <laughs> yeah. Well, people want to know, but what do I have? Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's why it's okay. So you have a multi-system adaptive disorder, right? There yeah. you go. There you go. Okay. So before we get into rapid fire audience questions, I think one area we didn't <laughs> cover very much was a little bit around, we touched on this just a little bit around medication and you started the conversation with this. Once you're having essentially tissue damage and it shows up mm-hmm. in blood, then we get medicated and that's kind of where we're at. And this is why when you're medicated, you don't respond as fast, in my opinion, to interventions. I think it takes it takes more effort than if you're subclinical. But you also bring up, there's two main causes of hypothyroidism with autoimmune and Hashimoto's thyroiditis being a primary cause. And you talk a little bit about iodine and you talk about autoimmune versus primary hyperthyroidism. What do you want to say about primary hyperthyroidism versus Hashimoto's thyroiditis and iodine? So there's two camps with, with from iodine perspective. The one camp is everybody's over iodinated and nobody should be having iodine. And there's another camp that everybody is un, who has hypothyroidism is under iodinated and everybody needs lots of iodine. I don't really think that Iodine is the primary issue in this country, and really, we don't have a great way of assessing it. We have urinary tests, we have people doing the rub the iodine on your arm test, but really to test if somebody's got iodine deficiency, you have to do multiple tests over multiple days to really get a feel of what's going on from an iodine standpoint. So I just don't think it's a major, the major issue is 
too much iodine. So I think some people, small amount of iodine that we need, I think if you're taking that amount, it's probably not a problem. I don't think it's the major trigger for why people have high TPO antibodies because they have just too much iodine. So I don't buy into that camp either. I think immune-driven thyroiditis is the primary cause, a primary hypothyroidism. Some people would say, well, is that Hashimoto's thyroiditis or is it just thyroiditis? What is it? It's all the same thing in my opinion. Whether you have a TPO or thyroglobulin antibodies does not necessarily distinguish whether you have thyroiditis, but is it Hashimoto's? Well, we call it Hashimoto's when we see the antibodies, but newsflash, when you start to look at the immune panels of people who have thyroiditis, most Hashimoto's thyroiditis is TH1 dominant, at least at the onset. And the literature seems to point that out, that some people are TH1 dominant, some people are 2-H2 dominant, and a lot of people fluctuate from TH1 at the start into TH2 later on. And I've seen this in my practice. People who have, you know, have thyroiditis, you look at a lymphocyte panel, they're TH1 dominant, they're not making antibodies. And then as they get better, thyroid gland starting to produce more hormone on its own, they need less medication, their conversion's better, they're feeling and functioning better. All of a sudden, their antibodies pop up. <gasps> Am I worse? Eh, nope. You're just now making some antibodies that are out there now cleaning up some of the debris that was there from before, and you're just yeah. balancing it. So I don't really, I used to kind of be like, oh, is it Hashimoto's or is it like that was the defining? Th- I don't look at it that way anymore. I think most of the cases are Hashi or thyroiditis, call it Hashimoto's, not cause it Hashimoto's. It doesn't really change wh- how we're going to help them. Lab testing is lovely and it could also shoot you in the foot that way, right? In a way, when you're looking at it from a black and white, is it going up, going down? So on that note, this is what people are going to ask. They're going to say, this is great, Dr. Eric, but if either, and this I think is two different cases. I think every case is different, but let's say subclinical thyroid case walks into your office or a medicated thyroid case walks into your office. I think that's probably maybe even a more common one, medicated and feels like crap. Is there some initial steps or workup that you're going to look at first? First thing I do is look at their health history, health timeline, their signs and symptoms, and a comprehensive blood chemistry panel. I never look at a thyroid panel all by itself. Okay. So for, if you're a person who's got hypothyroidism and you went to a GP or an endologist, you're going to get TSA with reflex to T4 and you're going to look at it in that limited context. You can't assess thyroid physiology in the body with a TSH and a free T4. You just cannot. Why do medical doctors only then run those two tests? Because their treatment is to provide enough T4 medication to suppress your TSH back into range. Okay. So I look at a full thyroid panel and we wanted, there's four, and then I look at the full thyroid panel in context with a comprehensive metabolic panel. What does that mean? My comprehensive metabolic panel is 65 tests in a year analysis. It has about seven or eight inflammatory markers, a full lipid panel, full iron panel, blood sugar markers. So it's pretty comprehensive because I want to see what's going on with thyroid physiology. And I need to know, especially for that patient who is on T4, one of the things that happens to people that get put on T4 only is they realize when they look at T3 and free T3 is the more T4 they get and the lower they drive their TSH, the worse their T3 gets and the worse they feel. And medical doctors, I don't think realize that or they do realize it and therefore do not want to run T3 and free T3. Okay. Now, why does that happen? If you want to know that, you want me to say why? Yeah, please. Okay. So you have this thing called your pituitary gland. Okay. And it's a gland in your brain. Above that's your hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus and the pituitary are monitoring how much T4 and T3 are in the bloodstream. When your thyroid gland makes hormone, most of it is T4. Small percentage, maybe five micrograms per day is T3, okay? They get dumped out into the bloodstream. 
most of what circulates in your bloodstream is T4. It's a less active hormone. It when somebody says it's inactive, it's technically not inactive. It does things, which concerns me about people taking too much T4. That T4 gets to a cell or tissue that needs thyroid hormone. It releases T4. That becomes free T4. And then that can get into a cell. And then at the cell, each tissue type gets to decide what it does with that thyroid hormone. Do I want to increase my metabolism? I'll convert that, bring that T4 in, convert it to T3 and turn on the machinery in the manufacturing process. Do I not want to increase my metabolism? I'll deactivate the T4 to reverse T3 and send it on its way. The cells can also bring in some T3 and it's usually a split in the cell. Some of the T3 inside the cell is what the is direct from the bloodstream and some of it's converted from T4 from the bloodstream. But if the cell doesn't want to increase its metabolism, same thing with the T3. Do I bring the T3 in and use it, increase metabolism, or I deactivate it to T2 and off it goes to get metabolized by the body? So we need to know what's going on. And so when the when there's a lot of T4 in the bloodstream, the hypothalamus is monitoring that. And as soon as the hypothalamus is saturated with T4, it decreases the production of something called TRH, thyrotropin releasing hormone, which then goes to the thyroid gland and says, hey, don't make as much TSH. I'm good. We got enough T4 in the system. The pituitary gland, it, it's got another job. So it's listening to the hypothalamus, monitoring how much T4 is coming in, but it's also monitoring how much T3 is in circulation. And most of the T3 in the body is made by the peripheral cells, bringing T4 in, converting it to T3, and then putting it back out into the bloodstream so it can be used again by another cell. And it gets used a couple of times before it gets metabolized out of the body. So the pituitary gland is like, all right, T4 is good. How's my T3? Ooh, T3 is still low. And so because T3 is still low, it realizes that the peripheral tissues aren't doing such a great job of converting that T4 to T3, that it keeps TSH elevated to tell the thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone. But instead of a 10 to 1 ratio of T3, that ratio can go down to 5 to 1, okay? So when you go to your doc and the TSH is still elevated, right, but you feel pretty good, that's because your body's trying to help you. It's trying to get that thyroid gland to make more T3 to compensate for what the peripheral tissues aren't doing. What's interesting is it's TSH. So somehow that thyroid signal, that TSH signal is different based on whether we need more T4 or we need more TSH. It'd be like saying, yo, or yo, right? It's the same word just said differently. So TSH, the signal changes the thyroid gland. So the thyroid gland typically only makes about five to 10 micrograms tops, but if it needs to help, it'll make more if the peripheral conversion, if it's not up to par. So when you flood the system with too much T4, it can suppress the ability for the pituitary gland to override it. And so what happens now is that you push so much T4 into the system that TSH gets plummets. Now you're under one. And what happens? Well, I lose the ability of my thyroid gland to try and help compensate with T3 and the excessive T4 in the cyst in the bloodstream deactivates an enzyme inside your cells called deiodinase 2, which is the enzyme that converts T4 to T3. So now I just made the problem I had worse. I already had a problem converting T4 to T3 in the cells. I overflood the cells, the bloodstream with T4. Now my cells are going, whoa, there's so much T4 out there. We must be hyperthyroid, deactivate, don't make any more T3. So too much 
T4 medication suppresses T4 to T3 conversion. So we shouldn't be trying to drive TSH sometimes down to two, under one. We should be monitoring and giving enough T4 that it supports the physiology, but not so much that it's suppressing TSH production and conversion. Right. Okay. Okay. Let me jump into these rapid fire questions. This one is going to kind of be on the tails of what you were just describing. So these are all submitted from the audience. This person says, I've done all the labs. I'm taking the thyroid meds. I tried armor first. Now I'm on level thyroxine. I don't see any improvements in thyroid numbers or symptoms. And the endocrinologist has only increased dose of T4 to decrease TSH, which is what you were just talking about. What can I do? What are my next steps in healing my thyroid and improving symptoms of fatigue, brain fog, hair loss, et cetera? Yeah. So this is classic, right? I tried T4. It doesn't seem to work. I tried T4, T3. It doesn't seem to work. And sometimes when you get T3 initially, you get like a boost and you're like, oh, that's good. And then it plateaus. Why? Because I'm a cell. Do I increase my metabolism or do I not want to increase my metabolism? doesn't matter if you give T4, T3, you're going to have a boost and then it's going to plateau. Right. So what do you got to do? This is not sexy, but what you have to do is look at your health, your life, what I call the fitness factors and say, what is creating the biggest stressors in my physiology and start improving them? You don't even have to hire a functional medicine practitioner yet. What's my diet look like? I eat a lot of processed food. Stop doing that. Eat more whole healthy food. I don't care about what food religion you want to believe in. I really don't care. Eat more whole food. Keep it that simple. If you got that under control, am I under-exercising, over-exercising? Am I getting to bed before 10 o'clock? Am I getting up like after six, eight hours, like eight, seven, eight hours would be good. No, I'm not doing that. I stay up late. I don't go to bed till 12, one o'clock. I you know, get up at five because I got to go. Stop doing that, right? Start having better habits first. Fix your habits, improve your behaviors, fluid intake, cut out the things that are toxic, clean up your environment, do those things first. And if you struggle there, then find a functional med. Yeah. Then work with the functional medicine practitioner to start digging in and give you a better idea what's going on. But you got to identify what's creating that excessive stressors. All right. The next one is cruciferous vegetables. Do these really harm thyroid production or do you have any issues with these? No. Yeah. Same. Are you seeing a <laughs> spike in Hashimoto's or thyroid antibodies post-COVID? All I see all day is patients that have some level of thyroid issue. So has have I seen a difference or change in all my day. practice since COVID? I don't know that I've seen the difference. Is Does the literature show more potential immune issues, thyroiditis, Hashimoto's stuff since COVID? Yes. Yeah. Makes sense, right? I think, that, I think, I think the literature shows that. The whole conversation. Hey, you got a, you got a virus. Yeah. The whole you got a virus. What should the body do? Slow down it, right? Right. It's Slow down metabolism. Okay. This is a good one. This is actually where I first wrote you down in my notes. Someone has sent me a message and said, if I have a thyroidectomy, does anything in my care, I don't know how she phrased the word, but I'm going to just fill it in. How does care change? And I was like, you know, I know the guy for this. <laughs> so. I, yeah. And I get this all the time, but I had a thyroidectomy. Listen, if you have a thyroidectomy, glands out, you should need some T4 medication and possibly about five micrograms of T3 because that's what the body would typically make. So how much T4 do you need? Well, let's look at your body weight and all those things. If you've done that and you still don't feel well, then guess what? You have that excessive cell stress, which probably was there before you had the thyroidectomy, which was maybe one of the reasons why you had some problems with your thyroid physiology to begin with. So I get a lot of people like this. Yeah, but it's different for me because I have a thyroid. No, it's not. If your downstream physiology from the gland is working and I give you the appropriate level of T4 and maybe a little bit of T3 should work. 
Right. But if you have that excessive cell stress going on, it doesn't matter if you have a thyroid gland, no thyroid gland, on meds, not meds, the thyroid hormone is going to work differently at the cell level. Mm-hmm. Okay. These couple are medication-ish related. So one of them is, mm-hmm. is Hashimoto's reversible. And the other one is, I'm just trying to group them together. Do we need medication if thyroglobulin is high before pregnancy and TSH, T3, T4 are within reference range? Actually, there's a few medication questions. I'm going to stop there and let you answer that one. Let's Basically, get the first one. are wondering one. So, if they're trying to remove medication. Like, can I reverse this? Can I remove medication? That's a big question. Okay. So have I seen Hashimoto's resolve? The answer is yes. Okay. Me included. So I see people, thyroid antibodies go down to nothing. Their thyroid physiology, their T4 to T3 converts, and they need less and less medication. And many of my patients wind up not needing medication over time. Now, it does take time for a thyroid gland to regenerate, recover. So it's not like necessarily a today or tomorrow thing, but I think there's a lot of people that are on medication that have really no business being on it in the first place. Cool. So maybe this answers the next one about, do I need to take medication if my thyroglobulin antibodies are high before pregnancy, but my TSH, T3, T4 are in reference range. No, with the thyroglobulin antibodies probably indicate is there might be some level of thyroiditis going on, but you may not need, you may still be producing plenty of thyroid hormone. You may still be converting T4 to T3. What you might want to do is if you're not, if you're not pregnant is to start to look at some of those factors that may be contributing to it. If you are pregnant, you can start to look for some of those lifestyle factors that you can in all that you can change. But a lot of times when somebody's pregnant, at least in my world, I don't like people taking a whole bunch of other supplements while they're pregnant. We kind of keep it super simple, good diet, good nutrition, good lifestyle, and a prenatal. Mm-hmm. Cool. There's a couple more. You go. I, I got time. You go All for right, it. Cool. Do you think that gluten must be removed with elevated thyroid antibodies? Or do you see that this is not always an issue in Hashimoto's or thyroiditis? I don't think it's always an issue. Same. Cool. I think it's an easy answer. And, I don't, and I've got a problem that it is gluten really the issue. I don't know if gluten is really the issue. I think there's other factors that come into play. What do we spray a lot of the crops with, with Roundup? Roundup's an antibiotic. The antibiotic disrupts the gut flora, creates dysbiosis. We fortify a lot of things with excessive iron. I think the combination of those things, plus we've modified the wheat to some degree, maybe we're starting to make it look like something we didn't recognize. But I think if you're reactive to it, remove it but I don't think it has to become the thing that has to be removed for every person. Mm -hmm. Any advice for hair loss? Bald is beautiful. (laughs) No, Uh, As I'm sitting here with my, yeah, I don't have much hair. So what to do? I think when, when we think about hair loss, you know, people jump to thyroid, but it's not necessarily always thyroid. It could be mineral deficiencies, right? It could be vitamin mineral deficiencies. Could it be too much thyroid hormone? Could it be too little thyroid hormone? Could it be too much or two little androgens going on in the system. So what do you do for it? Have somebody do a really good look at your physiologies to try and help you undercover. What's the underlying mechanism? And if you're a woman who's overweight, insulin resistant, PCOS, start to consider like, hey, maybe my thyroid's a part of it, but maybe my androgens are really a part of this of that too. Okay. I'm going to try to group two more questions together. This one is another classic What can I Mm -hmm. do when you have all the symptoms, but your doctor says your tests are normal and or where do I start if I suspect thyroid issues? Okay. So first place to start, if you want somebody to really assess kind of root cause issues, you're not getting that from an allopathic physician. 
It's not because they're bad people. It's just not in their wheelhouse, right? I don't ask my plumber to run my electric in my house. I ask my plumber to do that. So allopathic physicians are awesome at what they do, diagnosing diseases and managing illnesses. But when it comes to, hey, I think I'm hypothyroid, but I don't have a disease identified yet, you need a functional medicine practitioner because those are the people that should be looking for root cause issues so that you never actually get to the full-blown disease model, but Mm -hmm. you're an allopathic physician. So find a functional medicine practitioner. And I will tell you, because I get this question all the time, how do I pick a good one? There's lots of different opinions, just like picking an orthopedic surgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon. But when we're talking thyroid physiology, if you're seeing a functional medicine practitioner whose first thought process is, I need to give you, I just need to give you T3 to optimize your thyroid physiology, that's a red flag for me. They don't Mm -hmm. understand what's going on. Just because somebody puts T3 in your system doesn't mean they fixed your thyroid physiology. They have not optimized your thyroid physiology. Optimal thyroid physiology is you don't need extra T3 because your body makes it the way it should. So that's a red flag for me. If you're seeing somebody who's just a X specialist in functional medicine, that's probably not what you're looking for because functional medicine isn't about being a specialist in one thing and ignoring all the other systems. A good functional medicine practitioner, in my opinion, is good at hormone physiology, gut physiology, because you got to know all of it because it's all tied together. And you may disagree with me, but- I I think I would just say, have a conversation with them and make sure that they like thyroid physiology and, or if this is subclinical, let's say you did go to the doctor and the labs were normal and we're experiencing maybe, maybe not subclinical thyroid issues, maybe ask them if they're comfortable with that because I don't think everyone is probably. Yeah. Or they think what we have happening in functional medicine. And I kind of wrote like a TED talk on guarding the gate. Because in functional medicine, what we're seeing, and it's great, we're seeing a lot of allopathic physicians or a lot of allopathic mindsets coming to functional medicine and, my opinion, screwing it up. The thought process is drugs are bad, so I'm going to give you 10 supplements to fix what that drug would have done, so to replace it. And if you're showing up in my office taking 28 supplements from a functional medicine practitioner, I'm sorry, they are not practicing functional medicine. They're greenwashing allopathic medicine. Am I anti-supplement? No, I am not. But if you need 28 supplements to feel awful, you don't need any of them because you're trying to treat deficiencies instead of trying to treat the cause of the deficiency, which is what functional medicine should be all about. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. That's a touchy subject, but I sometimes I ask people like, oh, did you see what kind of practitioner was it? Because sometimes they still kind of bring the same thought Mm -hmm. processes over. Like we're Mm -hmm. just going to be able to give this thing and it's going to solve it. And that does not work that way. On the note of supplements, that is the next question. Mm -hmm. This person asked, what are three top supplements? I love these kinds of questions. Like, um, what are three top supplements you should be taking if you have hyperthyroidism? Hyperthyroidism. This person, this person wrote hyperthyroidism. Don't know who they are. So that's a little different, I feel like, but a lot different. Yeah. So at the end of the day, and I almost hate to say, because I don't know what's going on, but there are some supplements that you can use that can help somebody with hyperthyroidism and L-carnitine is one of those things that can be very beneficial to help kind of reduce the excessive thyroid physiology. I don't like giving out general supplement recommendations because then people just like, I'm going to buy it. Mm-hmm. But in general, across the board, right? There's a couple things I think we could generically recommend to a lot of people if they're not doing well. One of them is not seeing anybody. One of the best things I think you could do before you grab for a multivitamin 
is a really good quality digestive enzyme or some betaine HCL. Because as soon as you're in that stress response, your digestive capacity goes down. If you have gas, you got bloating and pressure, a good digestive enzyme helps you break down your food better, less likelihood from food reactivity. You're going to probably extract more micronutrients from your food. So if you got digestive issues, I think starting with a digestive enzyme could be a, a great place to start. Okay. If you are chronically fatigued, one of my go-to things that I think, especially for somebody, you've probably had these people that are like, I am so tired at three o'clock in the afternoon. I can barely keep my eyes open, right? And they want to drink coffee. In those patients, especially patients with thyroid issues, hyper or hypo, they have probably high levels of circulating adenosine by three o'clock in the afternoon. I think one of great tool is something called creatine. Mm. Yes, creatine, the same stuff that the bros at the gym were using. And let me tell you why. When you have excessive cell stress or you have hyperthyroidism, you are not making, let's say, let's do it from a low mitochondrial standpoint first. You eat food, you convert food energy into cellular energy called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. That means there's three phosphate groups attached to this molecule called adenosine. Adenosine, not melatonin, is your sleep hormone. It's what keeps you asleep. So let's make up a mystical number of 100 ATP. You start the day with 100 full-blown ATP. As you go through the day and you're using up energy, you're pulling those phosphate groups off. And what happens by evening time is you've got a lot of naked adenosines running, rolling around the bloodstream. And those naked adenosines can bind to the adenosine receptor. And that's how, what helps you get deep, good quality sleep. Okay. That's why the person says, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. Man, I slept like a dream last night. What'd you do yesterday? Oh, I was outside all day in the cold, working all day. Slept like a I never slept that good before. Right. Because you exhausted your adenosine levels and you had a great night's sleep. But if you've got excessive cell stress, you've got hypothyroidism, you've got too much thyroid hormone, you're burning out and you're chewing through those adenosine, those ATPs too quickly, or you're chewing through them because you don't make a lot of ATP efficiently. Let's say instead of having 100 ATP to start the day, you start with 50 ATP and 50 adenosine. And now you're going through the day and now you're pulling those phosphate groups off and by two, three o'clock in the afternoon, you have the same level of aden naked adenosine that you usually would have at 10 o'clock at night. So guess what happens at two or three o'clock in the afternoon? You are, you're tired. So what do you want to do? You want to reach for your cup of caffeine. What does caffeine do? Caffeine blocks the adenosine from binding to the adenosine receptor. So now your brain is not sleepy, which is why people say, well, I could drink a cup of coffee and go to bed. Right. Because getting to sleep or your brain getting the signal to go to sleep is melatonin to get up is melatonin, but to keep you asleep is adenosine. So yes, you can still get to sleep if you drink your cup of coffee, but you will not get a good deep quality sleep. And if you don't, then you're not filling up those ATP molecules by morning time. You're waking up a little bit more tired, more cronky, more craggy. And then by two or three o'clock in the afternoon, you're crashing again. People think it's adrenal fatigue. It's not adrenal fatigue. In most cases, it's too much adenosine. Why might that be important? We have this process in the body called methylation, detoxification process. My good buddy Ben Lynch worked with him on those. And one of the things we learned is that it takes a lot of methylation to make creatine in the body. I think like 70% of methylation goes to that process. And so if you already have some cell stress issues and you're not making a lot of, and you're consuming a lot of energy to try and make up for these phosphate donors, why not just give the body the creatine 
There's really not a side effect to it. Now you have adenosine that your body can use for phosphate groups. You can now have methylation resources to use for other things that are really important. And what you see is people are like, man, I'm not as tired. I'm not as fatigued. I got a little bit more energy. So a simple strategy. And while we used to think about it for just the bros in the gym, now the longevity science is really saying, hey, this is stuff that could be really beneficial for health and longevity because as we get older, we have more oxidative stress to deal with. This will allow us to not have to use as much energy to make creatine because we've given what somebody needs to make. So I think it's a really easy, good, simple strategy, especially for those that are people are chronically fatigued or exercising or working out and have some type of condition. So that would be number two. The third thing, I'm a big fan of electrolytes. We you get creatine much. inside the electrolytes, especially if you drink Ben Lynch's electrolytes. <laughs> you can, you could get those in, in there. I drink, so I think the numbers for in Ben's, I think it's 500 milligrams in Ben's optimal so. electrolyte. So you would, yeah, that get you some. Mm-hmm. On average for a female, it's about 2.5 grams. For a male, it's about five grams. So it'd be a little light, but that's a great way to start and say, hey, maybe I'd do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From, uh, I liked how you went into the physiology there. So you actually brought up L-carnitine. When you talk about L-carnitine, I like to think about muscle fatigue and the signs of really low L-carnitine being like, man, my legs like hurt walking up the stairs when it's like super deficient. And so that's where my brain goes with L-carnitine. But what are the other mechanisms of L-carnitine? And we see a lot of like leg heaviness in thyroid issues, right? So this is where my brain is like connecting those things, but you probably have like a whole different rabbit hole for this. So what is the mechanism of action for L-carnitine or the research around L-carnitine and thyroid? So... We can use it as a tool for kind of blocking the excessive action of the thyroid hormone. So when somebody has hyperthyroidism, it can really have an impact there. I think there's a a component where we can actually, it actually has an impact on reducing the excessive production. The one interesting thing about carnitine, you'll see I want to give it to increase fat metabolism. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the science there is some science that says carnitine decreases the amount of T3 inside the cell. Mm. So then you go, hmm, wait a second. How does that all tie together? So if it reduces the hyperthyroid effect, so if you had somebody who's hypothyroid, would it be beneficial to give them carnitine, L-carnitine, carnitine, probably for them, okay? Because it's going to decrease some of that thyroid hormone signaling. But when we think about, is it hey, I want to burn fat. I'm going to give carnitine to help with fat transport into the tissue. If it's reducing T3 inside the cell, does it really do what it's supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And then I don't know if it always does what we want it to do, but if you give it to somebody and and they see benefit from it, that's awesome. I've used it for a while. I was, hey, I want to increase fat metabolism too, but I didn't see quite the benefit from doing it with a lot of patients. I actually saw the opposite. It was patients weren't doing well with it. Now, what's interesting, you could look at it this way. If I give L-carnitine and I'm increasing fat, maybe I don't need as much T3 inside the cell. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Or if you're exercising. Right? I'm used to people. I have seen L-carnitine used in people who are doing more heavy fitness. I don't have an opinion about it. If I'm using carnitine, it's usually in a product that is supporting overall mitochondria. So like I might pick out some that, you know, that's how I like to use it, but we all have different ways. Cause I'm always trying to reduce the amount of supplements, of course. Right. You know, yeah. so it just kind of depends. Well, like pick the priorities. So I think the the link is, cause it kind of goes with fasting, right? Mm-hmm. Cause people will say you shouldn't fast if you're hypothyroid. You've mm-hmm. heard, heard that? 
Yeah, I have. What's your thought about this? I actually feel like I gave myself subclinical hypothyroidism with lazy fasting. It's almost like when you change your diet and you're like, oh, that goes fine at first. And then before you know it, you're just like undernourishing and living on coffee in the morning, right? That's what fasting can become for people when not Mm -hmm. done properly. And I was working for a fasting program. So it was just, you know, life happens. It's like, oh, I'm doing really good. And then Mm -hmm. I'm just drinking coffee for breakfast and not getting enough nutrients. And so that is where that can go wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. What happens for most people is they're really strictly, they're undercalorizing, right? And then they're going, hey, I'm fasting. Yeah, you're taking 800 calories a day Mm -hmm. for a couple days. Maybe not a big big deal, right? (laughs) Yeah. Right? You do that for a month or two. Yeah, you're going to start to reset your metabolism a bit. But when I hear people say you can't do intermittent fasting because it's going to slow your metabolism down, it decreases T3. To a degree, it does. But understand why. When we're burning glucose for energy, we get what? Four calories out of that, right? When I'm burning fat as energy, I'm getting how many calories? Nine. So I get more net energy from fat than I do glucose. So I need more thyroid hormone to run glucose through the system than I need when I'm running fat through the system. Yeah. Good argument. So when I see somebody, they're like, hey, I'm fasting and they're doing well and they're getting enough calories and their T3 is a little bit lower. You feel and function good? Yep. Great. But my T3 is not in the optimal range. Well, given the fact that you're fasting, you're not eating much in the way of carbohydrates and you're burning this big fat log versus a whole bunch of newspaper carbohydrate, that thing burns longer. You get more energy out of it. Mm-hmm. You won't need to rev the system up as much because you're getting more energy for the alternative source. And so if you look at some of the literature on that, it comes down to that's probably makes the most sense for why you see a little bit lower T3 in somebody who's doing some intermittent fasting. So I don't see it as a problem as long as you're getting sufficient quality calories, right? right? Yeah. If you're fasting and you feel awful, don't do that. Maybe you shouldn't be doing it, right? But I don't think we have to have this global thing like, hey, if you're hypothyroid, you can't do any type of intermittent fasting. Yeah. I don't think that's, that's a tricky. The that's the tricky thing with any global policy, right? Health policy is like, well, my bottom line would be do it sustainable, be open to experiments. You can do experiments. I think intermittent mm-hmm. fasting is a good experimental thing to do sometimes for most people, mm-hmm. right? If you if you really want to do it and and do it perfectly and you're going to do a good job, great. But just human behavior falls off a wagon usually <laughs> after a while. I think when we talk about like People are like, well, do you have to do this every day? No. Like early man and woman did not walk around going, I know there's a deer right there, but I'm not eating that because it's the morning time, right? We weren't walking around like that. We were, I'm hungry. I eat something. I'm not hungry. I don't, right? So we make up a whole bunch of crap about how things work. But if you wake up tomorrow morning and you're like, you know, I'm really not hungry. Great. Don't eat, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're really truly hungry, eat, but make sure simply that you know over the course of the week you're getting a sufficient amount of calories you can have a little bit of days where you have a little bit less calories but other days where you compensate a little bit but for your size your your ideal size and your activity level make sure you're getting sufficient amount of calories but if you fast it's it's not going to set you back as long as you are have good healthy physiology and you are getting sufficient calories totally so i want to ask you about the strategic thyroid solution but i thought of one more question which is you talked about the fried cell membrane, which I no one talked about. Thank you for talking about that. I think a lot about cell membrane support so you can get nutrients in and out of the cell. What do you like for a cell membrane support? 
as a starting point, I think if we're going to provide fats, I think we focus on parental fats, which means parental omega-3, parental omega-6, and fat-rich foods, quality fat-rich foods that we can get in. And then our body's going to use those things to help make healthy cell membranes. Now there's other things out there, choline from eggs and a whole bunch of other things that are going to be beneficial. But I like to start with the parent. I'm not a big derivative, take omega-3 take or take EPA, DHA. Mm-hmm. I'd say eat the whole sources, the parent oils, and let your body do the best to convert them over. So therefore, you must always make sure that your bile is being produced to all support the liver, support bile function, so that you can digest the fats and use them for phospholipid memory. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did, right? So that's huge. Dr. Kelly and I did a three-day course on biophysiology a couple of years ago, where we got into the nitty gritty of all aspects biophysiology. So if anybody's bored, you know, that's Super out fun. there somewhere. And yeah. But how do you know if you have a gallbladder issue? How do you know if you have a bile issue? Several things. If you are nauseous, it's like a giant red flag. If you have loose stool, if you you increase that, all of those are like huge ones. But I look for any other signs of liver and gallbladder stress as well. It could be right upper back pain, right? If you're the person, if you're going to your chiropractor or your physical therapist with right upper shoulder pain or back pain, it doesn't go away. Think gallbladder. If you have some palpable tenderness underneath the rib line on the right side. You stick your fingers up there and it's tender and sore there. Good idea. If you have loose stools, especially when you eat fatty food, or you have greasy stools, meaning, and everybody says gross, but when you flush the toilet, it kind of slimes the side of the bowl, probably too much fat in your stool. If you've been told you have an oxalate problem, probably a good idea that you might have some fat malabsorption. You can look on your blood chemistry panels if you're Billy Rubin's over 0.8, good indication you might have some gallbladder issues. You could look at your AST, your ALT, your GGT. If you have elevated cholesterol, you probably have some issues with biophysiology. If you're dehydrated, you don't drink a lot of water, you might have some problems with biophysiology because bile is 90% water, right? And there's a connection between your cholesterol being out of range and your thyroid being out of range, right? Absolutely. To get cholesterol. So when you eat food, you turn that glucose into something called acetyl-CoA and that goes into something called your your cell and your mitochondria and goes into something called your Krebs cycle you learned about in seventh grade science class. If you've got a low T3 state or you don't need to make energy, that acetyl-CoA comes out of that Krebs cycle instead of going to make ATP and we've converted into cholesterol because the body goes, hey, my mitochondria doesn't need to make any more energy. I'm going to use that food energy to make some neurotransmitters. I'm going to use it to make some hormones. I'm going to use it to make some cortisol, some DHEA, some estrogen, right? So the cholesterol comes out into the bloodstream and then it needs to go places. But to get cholesterol out of the bloodstream and into your liver to make bile, you need optimal levels of T3 to get it in there. To get cholesterol out of the bloodstream and into your adrenal gland to make cortisol and DHEA and progesterone and pregnenolone and all kinds of other good stuff, guess what you need? You need T3 for those LDL and HDL to dock and dump off your cholesterol. So if you see cholesterol building up in your bloodstream, there's a good chance you have some bile issues going on and there's a good chance you've got tissue or tissue hypothyroidism going on. Before you jump to, oh, I have adrenal fatigue, You do not probably have adrenal fatigue because the adrenal gland actually doesn't fatigue. But if your cortisol is low, your DHEA is low, your estrogen, your testosterone is low, your adrenal gland is probably not broken, look for your, look at your T3 levels and look at your cholesterol levels. If cholesterol is hanging out in the bloodstream and you have low T3, 
that's probably why your adrenal gland's not making DHEA and cortisol. Hmm. So many things. So the thyroid debacle is the name of the book. And you have this mm-hmm. strategic thyroid solution that you discuss in there. What are some of the parts of the strategic? Tell us about it. Tell us a little bit about that in the book. So the focus of the solution is to, from for the person to understand, okay, how do I attack this thing? Well, mm-hmm. we talk about all what we call the fitness factors, physical fitness, emotional fitness, nutritional fitness, sleep fitness, respiratory fitness. So these are all the categories that you want to start to take a look at as to why my thyroid physiology might be downregulated. So you, each chapter in that part of the book is dedicated to in each one of those fitness factors. Each chapter could have been a book itself, like on breathing. I mean, there's full books written on it, but we just give you a t- how to test some of it and how to assess some of it. But those are things to work on. So we want people, before they jump to supplements, we want them to look at their habits and their and their behaviors. For the clinician, and I, as we were talking, Mitch, my guy Mitch, just put our, we did a, a course on the book for clinicians, and that course will be out here probably in the next month. So Mitch just said, hey, it's almost ready to go. But we want the clinicians to also look at those same things and work their way through the process before you jump to just throwing somebody on a bunch of thyroid medication. Let's walk through these steps. And we also walk them through how somebody can look at their blood chemistry panel to say, okay, what's going on with my thyroid panel? Do I have inflammation? And then do I have what tissues are being impacted by that hypothyroid state? Do you have an adrenal pattern? Do you have a renal pattern? Do you have a blood sugar pattern? Do you have a liver pattern? Do you have a lipid pattern? And we kind of walk through that process. So the strategic thyroid solution is to really look at the physiology and go, okay, thyroid physiology is adapting to something. This is where we start, how we go through the process to start looking at what is causing that excessive cell stress response and how do I start reducing the load or eliminating the load so you can shift the body back to homeostatic regulation. Perfect. And it's out. It's been out since last summer, last fall. So you can go get it now. Thyroid debacle. You can get it. You can get it. Yep. You can get it on Amazon, wherever you buy your books. But you know, Amazon is probably the the big beast in the room at these days. Yeah. And if clinicians are interested in your programming, where can they find out more or where can people find you online in general? So rejuvagencenter.com is my primary website. And we'll have a link to the thyroid debacle course on there. I have a podcast called Thyroid Answers Podcast. And by all means, if you want to come join us on the podcast, you can come on and we'll chat on the podcast. And then I have on Instagram, I'm not a huge social media person. I'm not doing any like TikTok-y type videos or I'm dancing or anything. Most of my stuff is more kind of educational. So if you're looking for the three secret tips to fix your thyroid physiology tomorrow, don't come to my channel. If you want to learn about, okay, why do I have blood sugar issues if I have a thyroid issue? I'll teach you that. Okay. So Instagram, it's Dr. Eric Balcavage on Instagram and got a YouTube. I think it's Rejuvagen. My, some of my team's starting to put all the stuff that I've done on those sites because I'm not a huge social media guy, but we're getting it there. I can't see you dancing, but I could see you shooting hoops possibly. With, they put words on the top, maybe. I'm not sure. It's a possibility. Possibly. 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 Yeah. Possibly. Just now. Yeah. <laughs> I also don't, I probably don't, I don't have any, any moves either. So that, that's another reason why <laughs> it's not going to happen. All right. Thank you so much for coming on today. I it was Absolutely. so fun to listen to you geek out about different mechanisms. I'm sure there will be lots of people that love that. And worst case scenario, I think it's such a good service. I mean, there's a large percentage of people with diagnosed thyroid issues. There's a much larger percentage of people 
with undiagnosed thyroid issues that are just walking around suffering with these symptoms. So I think that there was plenty of lip service for both of those audiences in this episode today. So thanks Mm -hmm. for coming on. You got it. Thanks for having me. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.